beginning in verse 19, the Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury, and the expression on his face changed toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He spoke and commanded that they heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. And he commanded certain mighty men of valor who were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their coats, their trousers, their turbans, and their other garments and were cast into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, because of the king's command was urgent and the furnace exceedingly hot, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego fell down, bound into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. And he rose in haste and spoke, saying to his counselors, Didn't we cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. Look, he answered, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the form of the fourth is like Bene Elohim, the son of God. Then Nebuchadnezzar went near the mouth of the, of the burning fiery furnace and spoke, saying, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came from the midst of the fire, and the satraps, administrators, governors, the king's counselors gathered together, and they, they saw these men on whose bodies the fire had no power. The hair of their head was not singed, nor were their garments affected, and the smell of fire was not on them. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. And they have frustrated the king's word and that they should not serve nor worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I will make a decree that any nation, any people, nation or language which speaks anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego shall be cut in pieces and their houses shall be made an ash heap because there is no other God who can deliver like this. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego in the province of Babylon. In the beginning of the chapter, we looked at faith under fire in verses 1 through 18. And now we look at faith in the fire in verses um, 19 to the end of the chapter. 
When we looked at the beginning of the chapter, we looked at the ceremony in verses 1 through 3, and then the command to bow in verses 4 through 7, the conspiracy that were formed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in verses 8 through 12, their prevailing courage in verses 16 and 18, and now our attention shifts to this actual condemnation to the fire in verses 19 through 27, and then what I'm calling confessions in the fire in verses 28 through 30. One of the great key verses in Daniel chapter 3 is verse 17, where, and read it for yourself, if that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. Faith under fire refuses to fold. Remember, that's what we learned the last time. Faith under fire refuses to fold because faith under fire believes that God is still sovereign. Faith under fire believes not in the fire, but in the God who controls all things. The God who is in control not only of the galaxy and this universe and this planet and this nation and this community, but also your life. God is sovereign. It also means that faith in the fire is going to teach us something and point us in, in a direction that we're not necessarily comfortable with or happy with. And that is faith in the fire means that sometimes suffering is necessary even though it's fair or unfair. And faith in the fire is impressive whether it's witnessed by the godly or the ungodly. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego understand that their obedience almost certainly is going to result in death. And you know what that means? God is sovereign. God is sovereign whether your obedience results in triumph or whether your obedience results in tragedy. Your obedience is not measured by what it saves or doesn't save concerning you time energy, money, or inconvenience, but how does God feel about what's going on? God may not deliver you in the manner that you had hoped, but this is part of the promise that we're reading. Make no mistake about it. Don't misunderstand what this chapter is and isn't teaching. God will deliver. He will deliver. We can trust His character. We can trust His nature. We can trust His plan. We can trust Him. Because Jesus Christ has already defeated that which we fear the most. The worst possible thing that anybody can do to you is kill you. And the Bible makes it abundantly clear that the worst thing that can possibly happen to you is the best thing that can possibly happen to you. You mean you're my ticket home? Thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus. The three Hebrew children understand that their obedience might result in suffering. They understand that God's deliverance, whether in this life or in the next life, is still deliverance nonetheless. 
Chuck Swindoll writes, and I quote, It wasn't the blazing furnace that forced the government officials to bend their knees to the pagan idol. It was their fear of the fire. When fear grips us, it can bend our knees too. It can hold us back. It can paralyze us. We dare not speak for fear of ridicule. We dare not act for fear of pain. We dare not live for fear of dying. There is a power far greater than fear, though. Have you guessed what it is? It's faith. That's right. A measure of it exists deep within each of us. And all we must do is draw from it to increase its liberating strength. That's the dynamic force. That's faith. As a kid growing up, I loved to read um, science fiction and horror. There's a very famous uh, author named H.P. Lovecraft, and he once described fear as the oldest and the strongest emotion of mankind, but I think that he's wrong. Fear is old, and fear is strong, but faith is older. Faith is stronger. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, even though they're not mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11 by name, certainly they come to mind when in Hebrews 11 it says, who quenched the violence of fire by faith. It's interesting, did their faith literally extinguish the fire? No, but rather it was their faith in the living God that quenched the violence, that doused the power of the flames. And what was the power of the flame? Remember what the power of the flame was. It was to burn them. It was to hurt them. It was to kill them. And their faith helped them overcome one of human beings' greatest fears, and that is, hey, this could kill me. Now, the reason why all of this becomes important is because one of the things that you need to ask and answer for yourself, and it's okay for you to ask the question, go ahead and just say it to yourself. What is it that I'm afraid of? What is it that I fear the most right now? Could you lose your life to a threatening disease? Could you lose your marriage? Could you lose your job? Could you lose your car? Could you lose respect in the community? What is it that's at stake? What is it that you're afraid of? Edgar Wallace said, Fear is a tyrant and a despot more terrible than the rack, more potent than a snake. And sometimes it's the fear itself that begins to twist you and to turn you and its poison begins to course through your veins and you begin to live your life in the constant condition and you make the problem bigger than it really is fear is a great hindrance in exercising faith fear is is difficult when you want to walk in obedience to the Lord and you might be facing the greatest trial of your life It could be that there have been difficult times in the past and and there's difficult times in the present. But here is part of the point. God is calling you to walk in humility and obedience and faith. The Lord God is able to deliver you and he will deliver you from the fire. Or he will deliver you in the fire. 
One of the most asked questions that I get is why doesn't God deliver us from suffering? Why is the pain and why is the problem and why is the suffering and why is the disability and why are these things happening? And we know from the Bible that there are lots of reasons. But when you're in pain, when your wife is getting ready to leave or your husband has walked out on you, when you are in pain and you're facing the needle, when you are in pain and you get the news that your child is dead, when you are in pain and you are afraid that you're going to lose the things that you think that are most important to you, all that you hear is the pain. Guess what? According to Romans chapter 5, verse 3, according to James chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, according to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 36, suffering will sometimes produce the fruit of patience. In Romans chapter 5, verse 3, Paul writes this, this, this verse that we seldom underline or put on the refrigerator. We can rejoice when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they're good for us, that they help us learn to endure. Do you know what? The truth is, some people just simply don't believe that. And they want to avoid pain, and they want to avoid suffering, and they don't care what it costs them. You know what the Bible teaches? Suffering produces the fruit of joy. Suffering produces maturity. Suffering produces the fruit of righteousness. Suffering helps silence the devil. Suffering is given to teach us, to purify us, to make us like Christ, to glorify God, to prevent us from sinning, to make us confess our sin when we do sin, to chasten us in our sin, to prove our identity as sons, to reveal ourselves to ourselves, to help our prayer life, to become examples to others, to qualify us as counselors, to further the gospel witness, to make us more than conquerors, to give us insight into God's nature, to drive us closer to God, to prepare us for greater ministry, to provide for us a reward, to prepare for us a kingdom, to show us God's sovereignty. But guess what? It doesn't matter to so many people when they are in pain. Because all they want is the pain to go away. They want to avoid suffering at all costs. Even if it costs them maturity, character, discipleship, usefulness, they would rather remain developmentally delayed and perpetually ineffective That's not God's plan for you. He wants to grow you up. He wants to use you. But look what's happened when they're condemned to the fire. Look in verse 19 again. Then Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury, and the expression on his face changed toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He spoke and he commanded that they heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. Remember, they had disobeyed him. They had refused to bow. And so how does the wicked king react? He wants revenge. And so how does he seek revenge? He heats up the furnace. He turns the heat up. The furnace exists for those who would oppose him. And he goes, okay, you think that you're going to oppose me? I am going to put the pressure on and I'm going to turn the heat up. But guess what? 
reality, God is in control of the thermostat of your life. And so again, now Nebuchadnezzar becomes a type and a picture of the devil who hates you. Oh, you don't want, you don't want to obey me? You want to obey God? You want to open your Bible? You want to read your Bible? You want to submit to the things of God? You want to do those things that are God-honoring and God-pleasing? You don't want to bow? You don't want to be a part of the crowd? My pastor used to say, any dead fish can float down the stream. I always remember that. Any dead fish can float down the stream. It takes real life and real courage to turn around and go in the other direction. You know why this is interesting, too? Because the Bible teaches us that there are several sources of suffering, aren't there? This wicked king who wants to impose his wicked will, he is going to throw them into the furnace. And here's what the Bible teaches. Number one, that suffering can be caused by Satan. We know that from Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2. Remember at the opening of the book of Job, have you considered my servant Job that there's none like him? Or do you remember in the New Testament when Jesus says to Peter, Peter, Satan's asked for you. And he wants to sift you like wheat. Remember Peter's answer? You said no, right? No, that wasn't what he said. Number two, suffering can be caused by ungodly human beings. There's no better example than right here. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 4 tells us that people can hurt us. Number three, suffering can be caused by this world's evil system that stands in opposition to God. That's what it says in 2 Peter 2, verse 8. And number four, suffering can be caused by our own, including the believer's fallen nature. In Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 24, in Galatians chapter 5, the Bible says, remember, that the flesh wars against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another. They're at odds with one another. There's a, an invisible battle taking place inside of your heart. The invisible battle has two sides. The side that wants to honor God and the side that wants to dishonor God. And by the way, when you embrace the side that wants to dishonor God, almost certainly, again, as certainly as night follows day and, they, and, and day follows night, there's suffering. And we know that suffering can be caused by carnal Christians in Philippians chapter 1, verse 15, and 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. But you know what I want you to do just for a moment? Just for a moment, I want, I want you to imagine. I want you to imagine your fear as that fiery furnace. The pressure is on. The heat is intensified. The three children are bound and they face the roaring fire. And I want you to just for a moment, I I want you to imagine what it is like to peer into the blazing content. I want you to feel the pressure of the heat as it as it wells up and the certainty that that's the place where they're going. What are you thinking? I don't want to go. 
Are you thinking that God is good? Are you, do you believe that God is wise? Do you believe that God is just? Do you believe that God is fair? Do you trust Him? Do you trust Him? Will you trust Him if He doesn't heal your body? Will you trust Him if He doesn't restore your marriage? Will you trust Him even though the money that you were counting on doesn't come in? Are you going to trust Him? Are you going to consider the fact that God sometimes answers prayer with no? Here is the answer to your prayer. The answer is no. You wanted to do this and God said, no, this isn't what I have for you. This isn't who you are. That failed relationship, this circumstance, that sinful situation, the answer is no. I don't want you to continue in that relationship. I don't want you to do this. I don't want you to do that. Do you believe that God makes mistakes? Do you believe that his plans and his purposes, they're not always perfect, and that God has made this horrible, terrible mistake when it comes to you? Or do you fully, really, truly believe that that person and that circumstance that you're facing is certainly not outside the realm of God's plans and purposes. How do you react to suffering? How do you respond to threat? Do you know what the Bible teaches? The Bible teaches that you're to expect suffering. In John 16, 2, it says, They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he's doing God a favor. In John 16, 33, this is the words of Jesus. These things I have spoken to you that in me you might have peace. But in the world, you will have tribulation. Cheer up. I have overcome the world. Yes, we expect suffering. But we also expect the reality that our sovereign Lord is in control. Not only are we to expect suffering, but we're to commit our souls to God once the suffering starts. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 19, Peter writes, Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit your soul to Him in doing good as a faithful Creator. It is not, I repeat, it is not, it is not, it is not a sin to suffer because you submitted yourself to God and you're walking in submission and humility and obedience. Obedience. Make no mistake about it. Their hands are bowed and tied. They are incarcerated and they are facing the furnace. And make no mistake about it, they're going in there. Time doesn't allow me to give you every reference. But the Bible teaches that we don't necessarily understand all of the reasons for our suffering. In Romans 8.38, God causes all things to work together for good, but sometimes we don't see that. We don't understand that. We're to realize that other people suffer. That's what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. We're to pray while we're in the midst of suffering. Psalm 50, verse 15. James chapter 5, verse 13. The Bible says we're not to despise our sufferings. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5. We're not to faint because we're suffering. And by the way, faint, of course, means we don't give up. The, we don't give up. The pain doesn't cause us to, to give up. It doesn't 
It may slow us down in our body, but it doesn't slow us down in our commitment to His goodness, His grace, His mercy. I know what some of you are thinking. Where does it say that in the Bible? Okay. Hebrews 12, verse 5. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. Does the Lord chasten his children? In my home, we had a saying. You don't spank my children. I spank my children. I didn't turn the issue of discipline over to the neighbors or to other members in the family. This is something that I did to my children because they are my children. And make no mistake about it. You're his son. You're his daughter. And so when the Lord is picking you up and placing you in a position in order to not just encourage you to do what's right, but to discourage you from doing what's wrong. Don't hate them. We forget where it is in the Bible. We do sometimes despise the discipline of the Lord. We do sometimes get discouraged when we're rebuked by Him. Isn't it odd that the Bible says, again, exactly the opposite? Don't you understand that the humility and the brokenness and the suffering and the pain are God's instruments? Not to turn you from Him, but to turn you to Him. God, why are you doing this to me? God, what did I do to deserve this? And then he starts, well, that's true. Oh, that's true, too. Oh, yeah. Okay, you can stop now. The truth, we actually don't get what we deserve. The Bible says he hasn't rewarded you according to your sin or dealt with you according to your iniquity. That even in the most painful times, even in the most troubling times, even in the most discouraging of times, guess what? God is still nudging you in the direction of loving Him, serving Him, being submitted to Him. The Bible teaches that we're to endure suffering in a steadfast way. And we're to thank God for the suffering. In 1 Thessalonians 5.18, it says, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. What are you talking about? In everything give thanks. You mean in trial? In everything give thanks. You mean in tribulation? In everything give thanks. No, it can't mean in suffering. Sorry. I'll read it again. In everything give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. We're not supposed to be some sort of self-made martyr. We're not supposed to wallow in self-loathing. We're certainly not encouraged to suffer needlessly in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 20. We are told to weigh our current suffering against the coming glory of God. But guess what? If you're paralyzed by fear, if you refuse to embrace the suffering, 
chances are you're going to get in trouble. Do you remember when your mom and dad used to say something like, this is going to hurt me a lot more than it's going to hurt you? Yeah, right. I don't believe that. But when it comes to God, it is absolutely true. Oswald Chambers said, The remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you won't fear anything else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you will fear everything else. Look at verse 20. And he commanded certain mighty men of valor who were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Sometimes you're going to be bound in circumstances that you don't want to go and it wasn't your choice. And look what it says in verse 21. Then these men were bound in their coats, their trousers, their turbans, their other garments, and they were cast into the midst of of the burning, fiery furnace. When it's, when it's, remember, they're there at a party and a celebration. Imagine the best outfit that you have, and that's what they're wearing. Ooh, this is a great suit to die in. Billy Graham said that to a group of men that he was talking to. He said, do you see this, this suit that I'm wearing? He said this at, at Ruth Graham's funeral. My wife, Ruth, brought, bought this suit for me. You'll see it today, and you'll see it on me the day that I die. That's what he said. He said, because this suit was given to me by my wife. He said, this day, the day that he was burying her, was the most painful day of his life. But the day that he dies, it will be the most joyous day of his life. The day that he's reconciled to his Lord and his Savior. Isn't that interesting? The, the three children are thrown into the fiery furnace. But they look good. Look at verse 22. Therefore, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace exceedingly hot, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Isn't that interesting? The flames were meant to kill the children of faith, but they, in fact, consumed the tormentors. Don't you think that's interesting? The reason why is because it was meant to kill everybody, but God had a different plan, and He was going to use it for a different purpose. Remember, remember what's happening for Nebuchadnezzar. Do you think he values life? Does he care about people really? He doesn't really care about them. Life is cheap to the wicked king. And so the people assigned to cast Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fiery furnace were burnt alive by the excessive heat. And Satan, Satan, has no problem expending people in the kingdom of darkness to torment you and to tie you up. And if they get a little too close to the flame, well, oh well, I guess it's just collateral damage. Some of you have already experienced it. Satan is willing to sacrifice your wife, your husband, your children, your friends. And he doesn't care if they're collateral damage in his torment of you. 
because he's a wicked king. The wicked king doesn't care, just so long as he has the last laugh. And his behavior makes it even more obvious that this king has not experienced the grace of God. This, this king has not experienced a real, true conversion. In verse 23 it says, And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they fell down bound into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. You know what has always cracked me up about this? Why they didn't just walk out? I mean, can you imagine? There you are with two of your best friends. A fourth guy shows up and the blazes are all around you. And you go, oh, let's get out of here. But they stay there. You know what this reminds me of? In the New Testament, in in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 8 and 9, Paul refused to walk out of the prison at Philippi. Noah waited in the ark until God told him to leave. Daniel stayed in the den of lions. And the same God who preserves you in the fire will keep you in the fire. And in verse 24, look what it says. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. The Hebrew word has the idiomatic equivalent to his mind was blown And he rose in haste and spoke, saying to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said, True, O king. Hey, didn't we throw three dudes into there? Uh, Yeah. Look at verse 25. Look, he answered. I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God in the Hebrew, Ben Elohim. It's a divine being. The cords were loosed. And, and read what it says in verse 25. And they were not hurt. There's no complaint. There's no pain. The fire didn't burn them. The the flame didn't scorch them. The smoke didn't inconvenience them. Here's part of the point. This is a miracle. This is supernatural. The Lord had promised in the book of Isaiah, remember, when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. The flame shall not set itself upon you. And who is that fourth man in the fire? You know who he is, don't you? He's the rock that came down from heaven that smites the kingdoms of men. He is the seed that's promised to the woman in the book of Genesis. He is the conqueror and the deliverer. Who is this fourth man in the fire? Nebuchadnezzar describes him like a son of God. But make no mistake about it. He sees a miracle. But he has no clue as to the identity of this divine being. And people are watching you. And they see you. And they see you in the fire. And they see the supernatural miracle when God shows up. And sometimes that's the place where you experience fellowship. Make no mistake about it. You know what the passage is teaching? There's fellowship in the fire. In the flames you'll find a fountain 
Jesus is the angel of the Lord. He is the deliverer. And I know what some of you are thinking. I, I, I don't want to meet Jesus in the fire. Can't we just meet at Starbucks? I'll get a really hot drink. One that I despise. Oh, you can experience fellowship at Starbucks. And you can experience fellowship in those circumstances. But sometimes the place where you have to go is the place where Jesus is. Remember what Jesus said? Come, learn of me. Take my yoke upon you. Remember, Paul said, I want to know him. I want to know him in the fellowship of his suffering. Oh, Paul, why did you say that? It just messes up so much people's theology. But you know what? That is biblical theology. In Romans chapter 11, verse 26, it says, And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the Deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. Guess what? The Deliverer is in the fire. That's where he is. And sometimes that's exactly where you have to go. Look at verse 26. It says, The Nebuchadnezzar went near to the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spoke, saying, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God. Sounds pretty religious, doesn't he? You see a miracle. You see supernatural. It's easy to adopt God talk. Come out and come here. The wicked king still thinks he has control. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came from the midst of the fire. And look what it says in verse 27. And the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the king's counselors gathered together. And they saw these men on whose bodies the fire had not had no power, their hair of their head was not singed, nor were their garments affected, and the smell of fire was not on them. When I was a little kid, I used to actually sneak cigarettes from my parents. Do you know, have you been smoking? You know, it's funny, I could lie to them. No. You know, it's also funny. They couldn't smell the smoke. You know why they couldn't smell the smoke? Who knows the answer? That's right. Their whole life was filled with smoke. But God was preserving them in their circumstances. All of the things that should have hurt them didn't hurt them. It says... I call this confessions from the fire. Look at verse 28. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel, that means the messenger, and delivered his servants who trusted in him. It doesn't mean that Jesus is an angel. The word angel means messenger. The book of Hebrews chapter 1 and chapter 2 makes it abundantly clear to which of the angels did he say, You are my son. Jesus is not an angel. 
but in this sense, he's the messenger and the deliverer. And they have frustrated the king's word, no kidding, and yielded their bodies that they should not serve nor worship any god except their own god. Verse 29, Therefore I make a decree that any people, nation, language, which speaks anything amiss against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces. That sounds like a person who's saved, right? Okay, so you got saved, and the way that you deal with that is you do what? Well, I'll cut them to pieces and burn their houses into an ash heap. Because there is no other God who can deliver like this. No, Remember what I told you that Nebuchadnezzar's name means his patron deity, if you will, was the Babylonian god of fire. See, part of the point of the instrument is that that this king thinks that he rules by fear and by intimidation. But guess what? God is the, the God who's in complete and sovereign control. In verse 30, it says, Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Now, again, how are we to think about the king's response? Remember, the king and the, all of the officials had witnessed this great miracle. Everyone saw it. By the way, does this miracle result in a revival in Babylon and the satraps, the counselors, the administrators, the governors, did they gather together and go, we want to worship and serve the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the friend of Daniel. Is that what happened? It didn't happen, did it? They're impressed, aren't they? Impressed enough to change? Not really. So what's the king's response to this miracle? Well, first he praises the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then he praises the Lord because the angel of the Lord delivered them, because they courageously trusted God, because they refused to betray God, because they were willing to defy the king. They were willing to die for God. He says all of those things. Second, he issues a special decree that anyone saying anything against the God of the Hebrew children are going to be executed. And here's how. Anyone defying the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will basically be mutilated. Their property seized and destroyed because, hey, I'm a different person. You know the answer. The king of Babylon is convinced, but he's not converted, and he's not transformed. And by the way, it wasn't the Lord who directed the king to say, Hey, I'm going to kill everyone who has something bad to say about the God of the Bible. Certainly the Lord caused Daniel to record the words, Nebuchadnezzar was the same cruel, he was the same wicked, he was the same evil despot that he was before the miracle. And by the way, when a wicked, evil king uses God talk, but there is no change, are, are we to trust him? I don't think so. Let me ask you kind of a hard question. What kind of wicked leader cuts his own people to pieces? It's got to be a person who doesn't know God, who doesn't honor God, who doesn't respect God. 
And see, this is why I keep telling you over and over again, the issue isn't Republican or Democrat. It isn't independent. It isn't this. It isn't that. Our, the things that we value when it comes to leadership is, will this leader honor God? Will this leader respect God? Will this leader defend life? How can leaders lead if they're willing to cut their people to pieces? Now, it, it wasn't a pause that I'm looking for, though. God's deliverance was impressive. And make no mistake about it. Somebody's watching you. They're watching you right at this very moment. And they see you in the midst of the pain, and they see you in the midst of the trial, and they see you in the midst of the hardship, and they're wondering whether or not you're really going to honor God, and whether or not your Christianity is going to hold up under pressure. Again, Chuck Swindoll writes, What really dazzled the people on the plain of Dura that day wasn't the gold on the statue, but the golden faith that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego displayed as a result of their fiery ordeal. And when we come out of, this, out of our furnace, we experience it stronger and freed up from the results that once bound us. We are a living testimony to God's presence and God's power. And that's impressive to those who are watching. Unquote. I like that. When we come out of our furnace experiences stronger and liberated from those things that once bound us, we become a living testimony. How can my pain and how can my suffering and how can my circumstances honor God? We'll give it a chance. Did it ever occur to you? Even when you don't realize it, they are watching you. Do you glorify a sovereign God? Do you obey and honor God in triumph as well as tragedy? Do you trust his character? Do you trust his plan? And by the way, do you still believe suffering is unnecessary? Do you believe it's something that has to be avoided at all costs? Even if that cost means you will never grow. But guess what? If you embrace it, and you allow God to do His work, you are going to grow. For me, when my grandma and grandpa were disciplining me, I just knew. Just bend over and get it over with. And sometimes that's exactly what you have to do. Remember what Peter wrote, that the genuineness of your faith, being more precious than gold, it perishes. Though it is tested by the fire will be found to praise and honor and glory in the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, your whole life will change if when you peer into the furnace and you see Him there, 
you meet him there. A lot of people are familiar with the hymn, Amazing Grace. All of you have sung it, haven't you? Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, by John Newton. What you may not know is that John Newton, every week of his life after his conversion, do you realize that he tried to write a song? And I think John Newton would have been actually shocked and surprised that we sing Amazing Grace. But he wrote many hymns. He wrote a hymn called, I Asked the Lord. It's barely known. It's seldom sung. He wrote, I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. T'was he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer. But it has been in such a way that almost drove me to despair. I hope that in some favored hour, at once he'd answer my request and by his love's constraining power subdue my sins and give me rest. It's his way of saying, God, make, make it stop. Make it go away. The song. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more with his own hand he seemed intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I steamed, blasted my gourds and laid me low. <laughs> we don't say that anymore. Blasted my gourds. But it's old English for he ripped my guts out. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? That means, are you going to just keep chasing? I'm nothing. I'm nothing. I'm nothing. Are you going to just let this kill me? Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I assure prayer for grace and faith. Newton's song, I'm answering your prayer. This is what you asked for. I'm giving you exactly what you wanted. You said you wanted to grow in faith. You said you wanted to grow in love. You said you wanted to grow in every grace. I'm answering your prayer. I, I had no idea. And then it says this. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set you free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayst seek your all in me. It's Newton's way of saying, okay. Okay. I'll humble myself. And submit myself. And allow myself to be changed for you. But that's the end of chapter 3 and we've got chapter 4. Let's pray. Heavenly Father.